So spatial biology to me is the next fascinating spot of pathology. It's also to me sort of the coming home. So you'd say, why would I care about digital pathology? There are lots of reasons, you know, hey, I could now untether myself from a microscope. I could get a second opinion. I described I could take pictures and I can make an easier PowerPoint. But the real value of digitizing a slide is being able to garner insights that I couldn't get under a microscope. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Today, we'll be talking about spatial biology, and more specifically, how it can put pathology in the driver's seat when it comes to personalized medicine and drug development. Dr. Ken Bloom is head of pathology at Nuclei, which is using spatial biology applied to pathology images. As we talk about his career, you'll hear how Dr. Bloom has been on the cutting edge of things like telepathology, image analysis, immunofluorescence, and now spatial biology. All right, here's Dr. Ken Bloom. You've been kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of new technologies in pathology, I think from probably from the beginning of your career, and we're going to go through uh, some of those. But I want to start kind of back at the beginning. So what would you say kind of inspired you to become a doctor? So I had the pleasure of attending Grinnell College, which was a small college located in Iowa. We had about 1,200 people total in the college. And because of, you know, off-campus programs, there were only about 800 people on campus. So relatively small classes. And one of the unique things about Grinnell was that they had a joint program with Rush Medical College in the day to do your first year of medical school at Grinnell. And the purpose of that was really to engage students into seeing family practice physicians. And one of the enticements was that you got to work in the emergency room and you got to work one-on-one with local physicians in the town from the start, which was unusual for medical school. You know, usually medical school, the first two years are books only, and then you make it in the clinic for your third and fourth year. This actually got us with preceptorships within our first year. And so medical school was something that I was considering when I went to college, but being able to interact with first-year medical students each year and those same professors that were teaching the medical school program also taught some of the advanced uh, science classes at Grinnell. And so I got to interact with some of that faculty. And it just turned out, interestingly, after my third year, I was actually doing some computer research at Grinnell. Grinnell has another interesting history in computers that we can talk about maybe some other time. But I was doing some computer research there over the summer, and they had a student, I had just finished my third year, and they had a student that had dropped out of the medical program at uh, Grinnell. So they would have been, so they had it basically at, toward the end of the summer, they had an opening for a medical student at Grinnell. And so I knew all of the professors there and they knew that I was thinking about applying to medical school and they asked me if I would like to apply. And I applied and had my interviews that same week and started medical school there like two weeks later. So my fourth year of college was actually my first year of medical school. Okay. That's interesting. That's really a case of being in kind of in the right place at the right time and, and taking was. advantage of that opportunity. 
It was. I would say most of my career, depending on how you look at it, is being in the right place at the right time. I had another mentor later on in my career that used to say that luck is opportunity plus preparedness. And so I was uniquely prepared in a wide variety of ways throughout my career, whereas those opportunities arose, I was able to capitalize on them. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's a. I, I can definitely relate to that. I mean, my 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 uh, my own career has a lot of that kind of being in the right place and sort of accidentally falling into these opportunities. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah, but knowing enough to to take advantage of them, I guess. Yeah. So you know, one of the interesting things of that was that was actually my prelude into pathology. So. After I came, you know, left my first year at Grinnell, so I finished my first year of medical school, uh, I was already a year ahead because my first year of medical school is my fourth year of college. And I went to Rush Medical College and uh, became, was actually looking for some opportunity to make some extra money during medical school and wound up working in an image analysis lab that was really novel in the day because image analysis was just starting. We'll call it computer yeah. vision at the time. Uh-huh. It wasn't nearly as advanced as, you know, later on in my career, really rudimentary stuff. But that got me engaged with the chairman of pathology at the time, a man named Ron Weinstein, who was actually the, the visionary of telepathology. And Ron actually, you know, identified my expertise in computer programming and computer knowledge and said, you have to go into pathology. And so this was actually just starting my second year of medical school. And Ron and I actually started to help supplement my way paying through medical school, a software company that wrote the first SAT prep program. So we sort of went into business together at first. And then I wound up doing a post-sophomore year fellowship in pathology, which was basically you take a year off between your second year of medical school and your third year of medical school and really engage actively in the pathology department, you know, learning some clinical skills, predominantly doing autopsies, participating more in surgical pathology, et cetera. So basically learning the, the real basic sciences of clinical work right? How to read the literature, how to determine causes of death, really reviewing what went wrong in clinical practice during that year. But in addition to that year, I became actively involved in uh, some of Ron's projects. And, you know, several of his pet projects were all, uh, you know, I'd call it uh, information technology based. We didn't really have that term yet. But they were all like, how do we just take this disparate information and really make some sense out of it? And so that was really my introduction, uh, you know, to Ron Weinstein, who really encouraged me to go into pathology. And, you know, really, basically, by the time I finished my medical school, uh, in essence, made me an offer that was too good to, to refuse. Okay, I see. Were there any other specialties that were kind of on the table as well? Um, I mean, before you were kind of convinced to go into pathology? Yeah, it was really between neurology and pathology. Uh, I was almost set to go to neurology at Stanford. And at the last second, actually, I pulled out of the neurology match, which was a slightly earlier match than the first year internal medicine match would have been the neurology part. 
came first. I pulled out at 11.55 on the evening. You can pull out till midnight. And I pulled out five minutes before from the neurology and, you know, really decided that pathology was going to be the thing for me. But it was a tough, it was a tough decision between pathology and, you know, some clinical aspect like neurology. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. So you stayed then at, at Rush for residency, is that right? I did. So Ron had the idea of telepathology yeah. at the start of my residency. And really, and we actually had a Department of Defense contract to, to build a, a telepathology system. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. And so basically through DOD funding, we had our own satellite with our own uplink. So there was no such thing as digital pathology in the day. It was still high definition camera mounted on top of a microscope Uh going over a satellite that was basically just broadcasting it as a high definition image. Uh, And so that was very unique. And what I did during my residency was twofold. So the first was there were no interfaces. So I wrote the interfaces to the computerized microscope so that we could control the microscope the microscope from distances, the image went over the satellite. We were just using regular modems to actually control the stage and the objective magnification, et cetera. It was basically robots moving the slide around. And then the second part of that, so that was the technical aspect of could we actually build something that could be deployed and executed? But the second part of that was, was it even possible for pathologists to diagnose slides on a high-resolution monitor? And those monitors wouldn't be considered high-resolution today, right? They were sort of the prelude to the 720p monitors that we oh, see. Sure. Remember, it's, a, it's almost two decades before those monitors, but they were mm-hmm. still considered high-definition at the time. And we did the original studies basically demonstrating that pathologists could diagnose as accurately with those monitors as they could through the microscope. Okay. So this is like way ahead of its time now. So you're in Chicago doing this and now like what kind of distance are are you sending this signal from? Like, like where was the other, like, where was the other end, I guess, where the the microscope was. So the DOD contract that we had was actually to project slides from the William Beaumont uh, Air Force Base which was in El Paso, Texas, back okay. to the AFIP. So that was the demonstration project. So it would be from El Paso, Texas, to experts sitting in Washington, D.C. Okay, and, and, the, and this worked? And it worked actually quite well. Very expensive, obviously. We were running sure. our own satellite that the DOD had provided for us. You needed these huge uplink stations like a TV station right, to broadcast the signal up to uh, the Mm -hmm. satellite. There were some interesting things in the robotics in that the time that it took a signal to go up to the satellite and back down was slightly more than half a second, right? Because you're literally transferring that signal up into orbit and then doing something and transferring back down. So we had to write some, actually some very intelligent software because when the pathologists would signal the slide to stop moving, for example, the right. computer wouldn't know about that until about a second later, right? And so oh, okay. you had to anticipate and backtrack a little bit. <laughs> so there's some there are some interesting technical aspects to doing it that we don't have, for example, with digital pathology today. Right. 
Okay. Now, I was going to ask you kind of how does this compare to sort of telepathology that we see now? But it's, of course, there's no satellites and you don't have that kind of second uh, delay each way and that kind of thing. Like, uh, what about like the image quality? How would that compare to what we've got now? So the image quality now is significantly better. Okay. But it turns out when we did that study, our unpublished study, right? What we what we did is our test case was uh, frozen section breast samples, right? Which we don't even do really anymore. But in the mid eighties, yeah. that was routine for breasts. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, how did we classify those lesions? Would we classify it as benign, malignant, or await permanent section? Right. Those were sort of the three categories of the day, and. While we did excellent, uh, you know, compared microscope compared to, uh, you know, the high resolution monitor, even holding the slide up to the light, just if I just looked at the glass slide, right? Are you pink or are you blue, right? You could tell even at no magnification, like 90% of the time, sort of what the diagnosis was going to be. So while it looked impressive, right, that we were there, the fact is the number of challenging cases would have been more, would have been a better metric really than just, you know, what was your overall accuracy? And by the way, we see the same thing today with machine learning and AI, where they tell us, oh, I've got this new algorithm that does as good as pathologists. It's like, well, you know, if we don't need, if we only need help 5% of the time, the question is how well do you do in that 5%? And what we demonstrated in the time with that study was that the tough cases were equally tough on both methodologies. So we were no better or worse looking through a microscope as opposed to a monitor. On the non-challenging cases, we were great on both. And on the challenging cases, it was still challenging with both. And there was no introduction of new challenging cases looking on a high-resolution monitor. So the monitor wasn't degrading our performance in any way. Challenging cases were still challenging, uh, no matter independent of how you did the work. You continue on in kind of the the I guess it wasn't called digital pathology at the time, but essentially that's what it was. So you went to a, a company called Chromavision. Yeah. So I had a little bit of transition in there. Okay. So in so I spent the first five years of my career heavily focused on these sorts of imaging technologies and how to advance imaging within pathology. And my main interest in the time was breast cancer. And we had a very famous uh, breast surgeon, Bill Shorey at Rush, that had been recording breast cancer statistics on individual patients, what they got, how they performed, et cetera, from the 1960s. So he had about a 30-year follow-up of that. And so I aided a team and helped digitize that work. Uh, and got very interested in breast pathology and became the breast pathology expert while I was at Rush. And one of the things that happened when I was at Rush was we were the phase two trial site for Herceptin. Uh, So, you know, Herceptin was the first real targeted therapy, HER2 targeted therapy. And being the breast pathologist, uh, I was actively engaged in both IHC and FISH testing around HER2 and developed some significant expertise around it. Really, what I what I recognized while I was at Rush was there was no way that precision medicine was going to work unless we could somehow bring precision medicine testing, all these new companion diagnostics wasn't a word yet, but to bring all of these 
advanced tests to the community because mm-hmm. we could barely execute them at the university. And I was looking at all of the resources and time that I was putting in to execute this academically and saw a gap. And so I had an opportunity to go to a reference lab uh, in California called U.S. Labs at the time, which was really a failing reference lab. But they had a vision of how they might be able to bring these new companion diagnostics out to the community. And they were doing that utilizing the Chromavision image analysis system. And while I was at Rush, I was actually the head of Chromavision Scientific Advisory Board and academically was one of their first installations. So I had been using that technology for uh, several years already, was very familiar with it. And really, when I went out to the reference lab, one of the ideas was, how are we going to translate this technology easily into the community? And it turned out we did some things very successfully. We created the concept of technical professional split that you could actually have a reference lab do the technical piece of work and return the professional piece of work to a pathologist who would be qualified to make that interpretation. And I recognized with companion diagnostic testing, especially HER2, the toughest part of HER2 was actually doing the right immunoassay actually performing it correctly, which in the day when we didn't understand the importance of standardization and all these other things, labs were really all over the place just with the execution. And so even if we could train them how to interpret it, they weren't doing the slide and the stain appropriate. So that was one of the things we brought in the reference lab setting. And about a year and a half into that, the lab got quite successful and got bought by LabCorp. And unfortunately, LabCorp didn't have that vision of bringing, you know, expertise testing to the pathologist. They just wanted to be a reference lab. Give it all to me. We'll do it. And my vision was, no, I really want to empower local pathologists to fully engage in all of the advanced technologies that were evolving. And so it turned out that Chromavision, the parent company Safeguard that owned Chromavision, uh, had a vision that they wanted to open up a diagnostic testing laboratory to exploit their technology. And so they created Chromavision as a reference lab, which initially didn't do very well. They had some real problems for the six, first six months. And they recruited myself and uh, the CEO, Ronnie Andrews, to come in and we actually set out the vision of Clarient before we both decided to come uh, and say, you know, this is what we need to do for the world of pathology. This is what we need to build. And that transformed, they hired both of us and that we were the ones that basically transformed Chromavision into Clarient. And the first two things that we did was actually split the Chromavision machine, which was really a combination of hardware for scanning slides and software for doing analysis. And we sold off those pieces, those two parts in different pieces. So we sold the hardware to Zeiss and we sold the software to DACO. And that got us the funding that we needed to basically materialize the lab. And really the rest of the the clearing story from there is just straight up. We basically, as companion diagnostics came out, we basically empowered local pathology labs to say, you know, whatever you can't do in your lab, let us do the technical pieces 
If you're not qualified, we'll do the interpretation for you or send it to an expert who will. But if you're well qualified to do this, then we're going to engage you to basically bring more revenue and keep the care of your patients local. Okay. Wow. And all right. Now, what about the the multi-omics immunofluorescence system? Because this was part of yep. Clarion's also. Okay, absolutely. All right. Tell me so, about that. So we grew quite successfully for five years. And in 2010, we got acquired by GE Healthcare. So GE Healthcare had a technology at the time that they were developing known as multi-omics. Today, we would call it cyclic immunofluorescence. In essence, what you could do, it, actually GE owned the Psi 3 and Psi 5, Psi 5 dye. They were actually GE patents. So they actually had some fluorophores that were GE owned that had no spectral overlap between them, totally spectrally separate. And they had recognized and had developed a methodology where they could basically de-stain a previously stained slide, or a better way of saying it would be to inactivate the fluorescent dye, the Psi 3 and Psi 5 dye that was on already there. So you could do a standard immunostain. You would use the Psi 3 and the Psi 5 as the detection system along with DAPI. You'd scan the slide. So you're basically doing two immunostains at a time. And then you would erase those stains or inactivate it. And then you could restain with another two antibodies and repeat the process. So between each staining event, you would scan the slide, right? Then de-stain it, stain it with two new antibodies, and then you'd scan that slide again. And so basically what you're billing up is a stack of images of the same cells, the exact same slide, each of which was stained with two different antibodies at a time. And, you know, in the day when we were acquired, they had repeated that process 32 times. So they had done 64 stains on the same slide. So wow. while the staining could be done, and that was, you know, it took a long time, wasn't a fast process. Uh, mm -hmm. And actually the biggest, the biggest point of contention with that process was between staining and scanning was cover slipping and uncover slipping the slide and doing that very gingerly so you didn't chip the tissue in any way. That, that was more of a finesse part on the technicians. The other part, though, separate from the staining, was how do you interpret all this complex data? Because now this just wasn't like, oh, we scanned a slide and we've got a digital image. Now we've got 32 digital images in stacks. And now we wanted to get down to cell level analysis, right? Because defining phenotypes were really a basis of what stains, what immunostains did you express or not express? So, for example, in today's world, if you really wanted to define a CD8 positive lymphocyte and do it right, you wouldn't just stain it with CD8 because you could have some autofluorescence that might pick up some aberrant staining. The stain might not be perfect. You might have some preanalytical issues or other things going on. And so you would really want to confirm that what you were calling CD8 positive, in fact, was specific. So today, we might stain it with CD8. CD3, another T cell marker to say it should be positive for T3 as well, CD3 as well. And then maybe something like a CD4 that should be negative if it was CD8 positive, right? So in this, this complexity of how you would bring complex stains together and apply the math 
to understand how to really dissect these phenotypes and then decide what these phenotypes mean was really a huge deal back then. We're still not great at it today. We're getting a lot better because now we have machine learning techniques and other things that can aid us on. But this is still an area of struggle in pathology even today. Okay. Now, is this kind of what we would call multiplex staining these days? Yes. So in, in fact, most of the products that are out there today are still combinations of this multiplex, this cyclic immunofluorescence. And mm-hmm. even the newer technologies like the Koya that are barcode technologies and you apply all the antibodies at once, but you still cycle the detection in the same way, basically two or three fluorophores at a time and still building up the stack of images that later need to be analyzed. Okay. Uh, this is going to seem like sort of a basic question, but uh, at the time, like how did you, you, you're saying you had 32 images, you know, with 64 stains. How did you store those images at, at the time? I mean, it, it, these, these days it would be kind of easy, but how'd you do it then? So uh, we own storage and even as Clarion, we were a digital pathology lab as Clarion. So we were staining a million slides a year as Clarion just for our customers, right? Just so that they could get same day analysis of the immunostains that they were ordering. Now, multiomics was, I would call it a different animal because it wasn't for clinical use. It was for pharma. Uh, and so, you know, the length of time that you had to execute projects were quite long, but the amount of storage and more importantly, the amount of compute time was really quite large. So while you're absolutely right that the storage conditions are much, much cheaper today, and that was a problem back a decade ago, what was a much larger problem was the compute power that was necessary to do all these calculations. Today, we can go up on an, you know, on a Azure cloud or an Amazon cloud and we can throw a thousand processors at it, right? We ran into this with next generation sequencing, right? You get a pipeline that took, you know, three days to run the pipeline and people would figure out how to put it in the cloud, throw advanced processors at it, et cetera, and reduce that to, you know, sub hour times. The same sort of thing happened with this analysis. And, you know, so... To do this, you know, even the analysis portion could take weeks, right? Not, it's not like, oh, I've got my stack of 32 and I want to get my analysis done and I push a button and it's there. Like it would, you know, like it could be today. It would be, you push the button, you come back a week later and you hope that things are the way that you wanted them to be. It seems like you you were really one of the early adopters of what's now called digital pathology, which a lot of people seem to think is really going to be the future of pathology in the not too distant future at that. So, I mean, you're kind of ahead of your time with telepathology. You're, you're talking about image analysis or computer vision as it was at the time. We're talking about multiplex staining, which was, you know, you were, you know, on the cutting edge of that. And I'm curious, like looking back, what got you interested in all of these things? And like, did you have any kind of understanding of what what it would become? Or was it just like it was interesting to you and you just wanted to be a part of it? So, you know, that's an interesting story. So clearly mm-hmm. when I started as a resident and Ron introduced the concept of telepathology, I had yeah. no idea what that meant, right? I, did, I didn't have the full concept there. Uh, to me, right. that was more an engineering task of, how would you build and engineer such a system? 
But what it allowed me to do as a pathologist is every slide that I looked at as a pathologist under the microscope during my training, right? So literally tens of thousands of cases through my training, I also looked at every one of those slides on a monitor. So when it came to actually looking at slides at a monitor, right, there was probably two decades where I had more experience than the rest of the world combined, right? Right. I had actually seen tens of thousands of cases, every one between a microscope and a video monitor. So I understood what the issues were. I understood what I could do easily on a microscope and what I could, you know, do more easily on a monitor. I would say by the time I was in the mid nineties and thinking about how we were going to bring precision medicine to the community, I had already recognized that this platform was going to evolve and was going to be the platform that was going to enable all of these things. So I, I always looked at digital pathology as it's really untethers of, has the potential to untether a pathologist from the microscope. Right. And provide insights that go far beyond what we could ever get by looking through the microscope. The question was always, how do we bring benefit to the pathologist? How do we pay for it? How do we engage people in doing it? And so one of the brilliant ideas that we actually had at Clarion was the way that reference labs used to work in the past was Somebody would, for example, want an ERPR HER2 immunostain from us. They would FedEx a block to us overnight. We would do the ERPR and HER2 immunostain that day. And then we would FedEx the stains back to them overnight, right? And so the actual cost of doing the stains was fairly inexpensive. What was very expensive was the FedEx bill for two overnight sends. It had right, sent okay. us overnight and we had to send back to them overnight. And it, it even meant if they were sending us like six cases, we were doing six FedEx envelopes back to them. It's like every case was its own entity because of the necessity of turnaround time. And what I recognized early on is that if I could convince people to look digitally instead of, you know, that, hey, I could give you this slide actually a day earlier because right when I stain it, I could scan it and make it available to you online. And if I could do that, if you bought into that and I said, you know, now I'm not going to send you your slide back next day. I'm going to bundle all your slides and send it back to you at the end of the week. I would have I would have saved enough money that basically bought the infrastructure for digital pathology. And it did. It actually was cost effective. So the thing that drove digital pathology, really, because we had 4000 pathologists using our system. That was a third of all practicing pathologists in the United States. They loved the system because we did a few other things for them. So now that we had the slide digitized, we made a camera button at the top of the screen. And so they could push a camera button and every picture that they took would get archived to them. And they could push a button at the end and it would download a PowerPoint presentation for them with all the images that they already took labeled with the case number and the stain that was performed and all of the things that people used to do for tumor board that would take hours in the day. Yeah. We now reduce that to a single button push for them. And everybody saw such huge advantages to that, that they basically all said, yeah, just give us the slides digitally. We'll wait the week to get them back. And in addition, if they looked and they had problems interpreting, 
they could just push a button and either myself or one of the expert pathologists that we had, and we actually had experts around the country at major universities that would help us, would immediately look at the case. So we had early adopters of digital pathology, guys like Jeff Myers, who at the time was at Mayo and then moved to University of Michigan, Hector Botafora, who used to be the chairman at City of Hope that retired, Noel Weidner, who was at UCSD, Craig Allred, the creator of the Allred score and you know world expert in hormonal therapy. These were all people that were participating in expert reviews of isolated cases. So this was a huge advantage and unlock the power of pathology, uh, really the digital pathology for the users. The one thing though was they weren't paying for it. The thing that was paying for it was not having to send the FedEx slides back, which more than covered the cost. So it was, so it's a slightly different story than today when we ask how will labs pay for digital pathology, right? Because Pathologists right. have still been reluctant to take money out of their own pocket and say, is it that advantageous to me that I'll reduce my salary by $50,000 a year to implement this, right? It, it empowers me, but I have to pay for it, right? And so we're still sort of working out the logistics around that, how will that work? And this year, we've gotten some new CPT codes for scanning, not necessarily reimbursement yet, but... You know, you could see that the field is starting to march toward a rational reason, rational way that we might be able to get reimbursed for right. these technologies. But it's still an enabling technology. You still have to go back. And in my mind, the fundamental job of myself as a pathologist is to still classify disease, right? Is it benign or malignant? If it's a malignant, what type of malignancy is it? And then give some insight both in prognosis and prediction of therapy response, more and more therapy response as we move on today. And so if I have tools that allow me to do that better, faster, and more granular, those are going to succeed, right? They don't succeed overnight, but they're right. going to succeed. Very much like next generation sequencing entered the clinical space. Started out in pharma, you've got to build up an understanding of how it might be utilized. And then once it can help subclassify disease and better predict response to therapies, then it moves into clinical use and gets reimbursement. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Ken Bloom. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Ken Bloom on the People of Pathology podcast. 
this is really interesting. Now, I, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the time that you, you were working at, at uh, Human Longevity, because this is a company that I've heard of, actually. Yeah. All right. So so let's talk about this for, for a minute. Like, wh- what is this company and what does it do? Yeah. So fa- absolutely fascinating company. Uh, mm-hmm. I So GE, after five years, decided to divest Clarion, and they sold it off to another reference lab. And I didn't see eye to eye with other reference labs. So I was looking for other opportunities. Uh, and I had the opportunity to meet Craig Venter, uh, you know, the, the man who sequenced the first human genome, uh, uh-huh. you know, an absolute brilliant person. And he had started human longevity with the idea of really finally being able to understand what the genome really meant. What, it was great that we had sequenced the first genome, but he was, you know, sort of scratching his head 15 years later and said, well, do we really understand what the genome means? We sequenced it, but, you know, 99.9% of the stuff that we find, we have no idea what it means. And so he said, you know, we're going to become the world's largest whole genome sequencing lab, not a panel, not an exome. We're going to sequence everything. And then we're going to align that with deep phenotypic data on individuals and try to make correlations between phenotypes that we see clinically, things that we would identify on whole body MRI scans, full metabolomics of patients, echocardiography scans, gait analysis, mental acuity tests, you know, basically everything that you could do non-invasively to a person because we didn't want to get into invasive testing. So Basically, as comprehensive a testing as you can get in a non-invasive way, and then also do whole genome sequencing. And then we had a whole machine learning division, and the idea was to draw references and correlations between whole genome sequencing findings and phenotypic findings. So the idea, and we still ask about that today clinically. So clinically, you can look at things in two ways, right? As a physician... What we're interested in is when we see a phenotype, is there a genotypic cause for that phenotype, right? So you see a child with a malformation, you want to know, is that related to some genetic aberration, right? Or you have somebody with a cancer, you would like to know if that cancer was driven by something that was in their genome, right? right? And so we do this nowadays fairly routinely, right? If you've got breast cancer, you're probably going to have sequencing to at least look at your BRCA1, BRCA2, PAL-B, you know, a series of other genes. Uh, For sure, if you've got cardiomyopathies nowadays, the cardiologist will order a panel of a subset of genes. uh, And clearly, newborns with issues are going to get sequenced for a whole variety of of different potential uh, aberrations. So Uh clinically, we do that. This was sort of a different question. So this was a question that said, if we did a whole genome sequence on you, could we predict future future health concerns? So it's the opposite way of how uh, physicians were using sequencing, right? This was a way of how could people really use sequencing? How could you really understand your genetic makeup and maybe predict things that you should do differently in your lifestyle or different environmentally because of just the way that you were born, right? And so those insights had to be gained over the year. And so that was, if there was one mission of the company, that would be the mission of the company, right? To seek, do a whole genome sequence and really provide patients with a roadmap 
to live longer. That's why it was called longevity. Uh, you know, the idea right. okay. was yeah. we just didn't want you to live longer. We wanted you to live a healthy life for as long as you possibly could could live. And the idea was not to go to reactive medicine like we do today. Oh, I've got something wrong with me. Now let's do a sequence and see if we can figure out why. Let's do it the other way. Let's be proactive. Let's try to anticipate things that might affect you and intervene on those before they became a problem. And so that was a much longer term vision. I became sure. involved in the company to lead uh, their division of oncology and immunotherapy. And so what we were doing was we had an IRB protocol to take advanced cancer patients and do whole genome sequencing and full transcriptomics to identify novel targets that otherwise might not have been identified with the sequencing of the day. So it was a pure discovery effort. And in addition to that, we had a tumor vaccine program where based on that comprehensive sequencing and some really unique work that I'll describe in a second, we could create a personalized cancer vaccine for you. So it would be an individual cancer vaccine. And obviously, Pharma was very interested in that in the time of, could we generalize that? So as we were creating individual tumor vaccines, could we generalize that into something that they might be able to put as a group of patients? If you fell into category A or category B, you'd get such and such a vaccine. Okay. And, and the way we did that, you know, had some very novel implications because it turned out that most of the mutations that we see in tumors aren't actually transcribed. So, you know, very much like every cell in your body has the same DNA, but your eyeball doesn't look like your heart, right? It's got the exact same DNA. If you had a BRCA mutation, guess what? Your eyeball has a BRCA1 mutation too, but uh -huh. it doesn't really have any effect because it's not expressed in your eye, right? So it's Okay, like makes sense. Talk, right? And so it turns out when you looked at tumors and you looked at the majority of mutations in tumor and then you did a complete transcriptomic analysis as well, that the majority of mutations that you identified weren't actually being transcribed in that tumor, right? And then sometimes you saw transcriptional variations that weren't due to a variant. It might be due to methylation or some other event that was modifying the transcriptome. And so from the transcriptome, we would predict likely neoantigens. So we could predict from the transcriptome the protein that that transcript would make, and we would run algorithms that would predict whether or not, uh, you know, it would produce an abnormal protein. So obviously all of the, all of the mutations that were transcribed in general, uh, you know, many of them would produce an abnormal transcript, which would lead to an abnormal protein. We would then, through the, our algorithm of doing those predictions, actually synthesize those proteins. So we would go to a separate, you know, separate resource, and we actually synthesize those abnormal peptide fragments. And then we would culture them with the patient's blood to see whether we would get a T-cell response or an immunoresponse to any of the foreign antigens that we cultured with the blood. So in that way, we would actually be able to determine which peptides your, your particular immune system was reacting to. So it was no longer a guess. Right. We, we would actually be culturing it with your blood and seeing what you actually responded to. And we could tell whether it was a CD8 response or a CD4 response. And then we would take 
the couple of transcripts that had the highest antigenicity for you, right, that your immune system was actively engaged with for right now, and we would translate that into an mRNA vaccine, very much like what we're taking for COVID, right? So we would basically synthesize those peptide fragments in you. They wouldn't do anything. They're just fragments of protein. But what they would do is engage your immune system. And the idea would be that now you would have an overwhelming immune response, and that would aid the checkpoint inhibitors and other immunotherapy drugs to become effective in the tumor. And it worked in some patients and others were, you know, still developing the methodology at the time. Uh, But that's what I was most engaged with, how we could apply what new insights we would get from whole genome sequencing of tumors. And could we, in fact, synthesize, uh, you know, tumor vaccines that could be aided in therapy of patients? Uh, You know, unfortunately, uh, I, I think our eyes were a little bit too big. It was an absolutely you know, brilliant company had absolutely, you know, astounding people to it. Some of the brightest minds that I've ever worked with, you know, Craig was absolutely brilliant in vision. It was a little bit out ahead of its time. Uh, Human longevity still exists today. A lot of the assets were sold out, but the piece sold off. But the piece that's still in existence today is the concept of doing whole genome sequencing with this deep phenotypic analysis to generate enough data to be able to do this future predictions, hopefully five, 10 years from now, where we can transform it into what it means. And the idea for patients at the time was, you know, if you're the person undergoing this, you're sort of the guinea pig, not really a guinea pig because you're getting good information, but the majority of data that would be gleaned from your whole genome sequence would be much more applicable to people 10, 15 years from now when we have a better understanding of what it means. So today you get your whole genome sequence and you've got all of these things that, you know, we can predict what we predict today, but the bottom line is, you know, we still don't know very much about our genome, right? And so the idea would be 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road that this could be a roadmap for our health. And as you can imagine, there were many big players at the time that were very interested in this places like Amazon and Google and Microsoft. That sure. This yeah. is a way to engage with patients throughout their life proactively, not becoming a healthcare system, not saying when you're sick, what do I do with you? But more importantly saying, how do I keep you healthy? And we see that today in you know, the wearable watches and other things that are trying to provide us insight into our health, but this would add the genomic component to it you know, which is about a third of all of our disease is probably driven by our genome. And so it's an important component to understand. It's not enough to be, it's not a hundred percent. So the good news is, you know, we can modify our genome in a, in a number of different ways by living better health styles, environmental factors, et cetera. But, you know, this could be something that would be incredibly important, you know, especially for our children and grandchildren, for example, they can right. template Today, that's of minor benefit, but would be of major benefit probably by the time they reached middle age. And of course, the pushback and downside of that were, I'd say, a vocal minority that said, well, you know, it's not right to do a whole genome sequence in somebody under 18 years of age because they didn't get a vote, right? And so they might not want to know certain things that maybe they had. 
And so, you know, there were, so there were issues in how you do this and how you bring the things forward. But, you know, an absolutely fascinating company, like, you know, one of the most fascinating companies, period. Whatever I hear about what human longevity has done or is doing, yeah, it's it is fascinating, and that's interesting. The last thing you just said there about, you know, because you hear about people who, you know, they got they have a family member who has breast cancer or something. That's like, well, do you get the BRCA mutation test? And if you if you do, depending on what the results are, what are you going to do about that? And I wonder if that's kind of a similar concern with, with what you were just talking about. Yeah, even even more so, because when you ask families of patients that have BRCA mutations, really only about a third of them get tested, right? About two thirds of them elect not to be tested, right? Yeah. Because they go, you know, if I get it, I'll worry about it when I get it. You know, I sort of know that I, you know, I don't want to know whether I actually have the gene or, or not. I'll do my routine stuff and we'll see. Right. So that so that's interesting. The idea with, but at least they're adults and they can make that decision on their own. The idea was, you know, would you have done this, determined something? And, you know, what, what if, you know, you did this when your child was born, right? And now they're 18 and they say, yeah, I don't want to know that I had a BRCA mutation. You know, I know it now. Everybody knows it, right? Because I got it as a baby when I had no choice, right? And, you know, Uh gee, I really would have gone through my life not knowing, you know, not wanting to know. Right. I think it would be a different time 18 years from now. Personally, I don't think that there's going to be anybody left 20 years from now that wouldn't want to know because we'll have better, better interventions, so I agree when there's no intervention right. except chop off my breast, you know, do this, do that. But, you know, if there was CRISPR technology, for example, that could fix it, you know, of course you would want to know. It's like I could, right. I could revert to a normal genotype. It's like, right. Yeah, that'd be a very different story. And that'll happen. But, it, you know, it, it's it's just a question of the interventions that are available. And you have to think 20 years from now, 30 years from now, those interventions are going to be significantly improved from what we have today. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're I think you're right about that. All right, now now this brings us to nuclei, which is uh, where you are now. You're head of pathology at nuclei, and nuclei is involved in spatial biology, which is another kind kind of just ahead of its time sort of new technology, and it's it's like the hot topic lately. So I want to talk about spatial biology. So first, can we define what that means? Yeah. So you know, it's got several different definitions, right? The easiest definition for, in my opinion, is can we take a piece of tissue? Uh, in this case, I'm going to call it a pathology slide, but it could just be a piece of tissue. Could we identify the individual cell components that make up that piece of tissue? So a tumor cell, a lymphocyte, an endothelial cell, a fibroblast, the subclasses of lymphocytes, CD8 positive cells, CD3 positive, you know, memory T cells, tissue resident memory T cells, M1 macrophages, M2 macrophages, you know, how many different cell types can you identify accurately? So those are the components. And then the spatial biology is the arrangement and frequency of those cells in relationship of those cells to other cells that it might be interacting with better define the biology that we see? Does it classify disease better? Does it predict outcome better? And that's just something that makes common sense, right? We do this sort of 
anyhow, right? When we look at a tumor, for example, we're frequently asked, you know, how big is it? You know, how big relative to what? I mean, we know that size is important, but more and more frequently now people ask, well, you know, it was two centimeters. You know, that wasn't all tumor, right? There was tumor and stroma. What part of that two centimeters was actually tumor, right? Was it 50% of the whole? Was it 10%? Was it 5%? Was it 100%? Because those might have different things. And then you've got the relationships of other cells. Now, especially with immunotherapy, you know, for immunotherapy, we sort of define broadly tumors as being hot or cold, right? Do we see lymphocytes trying to attack the tumor, meaning that it's hot? There must be antigens that your immune system's recognizing because it's trying to do something and attack it. Or is it cold, meaning there's no lymphocytes there trying to attack anything? And is that a problem that there is no foreign antigens that, that the immune system's recognizing? Or is it just an inability of the immune system to traffic to where the tumor is? Maybe the immune system is recognizing the tumor. It just can't, it's in the lymph nodes and it just can't get to the tumor for a variety of different reasons. And so you can now imagine that the spatial arrangement of those cells might make a difference. So for example, if we need a lymphocyte to actually attack and kill a tumor cell, we probably want to know about the lymphocytes that are in proximity to that tumor cell. And so we now want to know some spatial relationships, not just to know that lymphocytes are there, but we want to know lymphocytes that are in X proximity within five microns, within 50 microns. We can now define things that we couldn't define easily before. So when we define things that are intratumoral or extratumoral, we just do that by eyeball, right? And now we can start getting very exact right? Is it within 50 Uh microns of a border of a tumor? And so what spatial biology does in essence, and it doesn't have to be on a protein level, you know, there's other companies that are doing this on transcriptomic levels as well, where you can do single cell transcriptomics, places like 10x genomics and nanostrings have products trying to do this on a transcriptomic level. Uh, It's not really cell-based, but it's, you know, very small area-based, so it almost overlaps cells. And the idea is, can you look at different transcriptional signatures in different areas of the tumor? Now, the problem with the transcriptional signatures is it tells you what cell types are likely there, but it doesn't tell you the relationships of those cell types. And relationships, we just know, you know, in our heart, if you took this to, for example, there were 100 people in a room, you would know that just knowing there's 100 people in the room would be of some value. Knowing how many men and how many women were in the room would be of more value. But understanding the interrelationships between everybody, is that 50 couples? Is that men on one side, women on the other side? Is that half the group socializing with other half isn't socializing? Gives you far more insight into what's going on than what we would typically have just by doing counts or just by saying there's 100 people in a room. So spatial biology, to me, is the next fascinating spot of pathology. It's also, to me, sort of the coming home. So you'd say, why would I care about digital pathology? There are lots of reasons. You know, hey, I could now untether myself from a microscope. I could get a second opinion. I described I could take pictures and I can make an easier PowerPoint. But the real value of digitizing a slide is being able to garner insights that I couldn't get under a microscope. 
all of those things I could have done under a microscope. Yeah. You know, crazily, but I could have done it under a microscope. Mm-hmm. These are things that I am now, it's bringing me to the next wave of features that my eyeball can't see. My eyeball isn't good at quantifying. My eyeball isn't good at determining distances. Yes, broadly, I can tell things like, yeah, there's a lot or there's a little. That I can tell, right? But when you say, tell me the difference between, for example, we've got cutoffs for pdl one in lung cancer being first-line therapy, saying, oh, I want to determine a cutoff of 50%. Can a human eyeball see the difference between 45% and 55%? It's like, no way. You know, I've been doing, it just can't be done. And so if that becomes a critically important thing, now those are things that we can get aids with digital pathology that can actually identify cells, can identify lymphocytes, can actually do counts, can separate out realistically the difference between a tumor cell and a macrophage reproducibly, not necessarily 100% accurately. That's a different question is what's truth. But reproducibly, meaning it won't make a difference whether it happened in my lab or your lab, right? That same slide would be interpreted now the same way by all of us. And that's a huge advancement for medicine. It's interesting, like the more that I hear about spatial biology, and, and it's like, well, of, of course we want to know the spatial uh, relationships of different cell types and things like that. Like, like why didn't anybody kind of think of this before? Uh, you know, and then you think about, okay, you want to understand a 3D, 3D spatial arrangement of cells, and this has got implications for all these different areas within pathology, like you mentioned, but also like drug development, companion diagnostics, other things. Can can you talk about some of those applications in like these other areas? Yeah. So to me, the you know, there people are doing all sorts of things with spatial biology, some of which I think are ahead of the curve and probably shouldn't be done yet. And there's other more practical uses. So I'm a big believer that you have to put tools in pathologists' hands, right? Pathologists will figure out ways. It, it reminds me one of the things on my resume that I had done in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, was I was part of an advisory committee for Steve Jobs uh, at Next Computers. So in his between his stints at Apple, he had done Next Computers, and I had done so much with imaging and, and you know, how you might image on computers. I had done a lot of the, the work on Macintosh and Next Computers, so had a little bit of interest there. They, they, you know, had taken notice of some of the things that we had done while I was at Rush. You know, it always struck me, uh, you know, some of the concepts that Apple had around the first iPhone and why people should use it. And the idea at the time was that, you know, there should be, you know, three apps, one of which is at least used by every person who buys an iPhone, right? That they would look at it, that it was critical. And I think the three apps at the time were things like a calendar, email, and I forgot what the third one, maybe it was the phone itself, right? But as we all learned, you know, like a couple of years after it went, the killer apps that changed the world were actually the camera and messaging. Yeah. The other ones were interesting, but nobody thought, nobody knew to think of a message or a camera. They were add-ons. They were on the phone. They were add-ons. Nobody thought of them as a killer thing. It's just, hey, we could do this, put it on, right? But that was the thing that made a difference. And I think that's 
we're going to see some of that in spatial biology. When you try to get too tricky and say, oh, I know exactly the relationships that I need to see, uh, you know, you're probably going to be wrong. I think what we need to do is enable pathologists with digital pathology and then give them the tools to start asking questions that they couldn't ask before, right? So there's some good techniques, uh, it, you know, that have been developed for other purposes, things like this concept of neighborhood. So can I color a cell based on the company that that cell keeps, not based on the cell characteristic, just based on the company that it keeps characteristic? Is it next to tumor cells? Is it next to lymphocytes? Is it next to macrophages? And could I color that like an immunostain, right? So to a pathologist, it just looks like another immunostain, but it's actually not showing a protein. It's showing a neighborhood distribution. Right. Okay. So, so could hmm. you start visualizing concepts? And I just use that as a concept. Could you start visualizing concepts that are imperceptible to us as a pathologist today? And would be if we were still just staring at an H and E, but can I color code things and make them look different? So for example, in immunostains, you know, we standard immunostain, tumor of unknown origin. We want to do a CK7 and CK20 and see if they co-express or they're expressing only 20 or seven. It's like, well, could I predict that? Could I do this in a couple of ways? One, could I just predict that from the H and E and not require the immunostate, right? Could I right. highlight okay. from deep learning? So if I taught the, you know, I took a million images of an H and E and then the subsequent CK7 and CK20 staining, could I train a deep learning algorithm to understand and from an H&E morphology and predict what that staining characteristics would be. So that's one thing. Another thing would be, could I take a CK7 and a CK20 immunostain, instead of looking those as a pathologist as two stains, could I, through AI techniques, actually mirror that into a single stain and stain the CK7 in one color, the 20 in yet another color, and the co-expressing in yet a third color, right? So so you don't look at the individual stains because you could, they're digital if you wanted to, but wouldn't it be better if I could combine those two and overlay them in such a way that answered your clinical question, which is basically, is there co-expression of these markers or not, right? And so that just makes your life easier. And it not only makes your life easier, you could take a picture of that easier view to show it to clinicians to document, no, here's what it is. It's not like, Here's a picture of this. Here's a picture of that. Now, uh, you know, you have to sort of hallucinate it in your mind that they must be co-expressing. So there's a whole variety of things. I just use those as examples, but there's a whole variety of things that will play out that way. Where I think the technology is most important today, though, is really in translational pharma work. And what it's most important for, in my mind, is really identifying for novelly, for the first time, uh, true mechanisms of action of, uh, of drugs, right? So imagine today, right, we go through a series, it's being modified a little bit, but in drug development, we basically go through a couple of series. We go through a phase one, where we basically look at the tolerability of the drug. We figure out what the dose of the drug should be, and we look at the toxicity effects that are there. Mm -hmm. And we may or may not see a signal in that phase one. We're really looking at setting dosage and understanding toxicity. In phase two, we start understanding, looking for signals. 
and potentially identifying mechanisms of action. Because when we move to phase three, we have to design the study and decide whether we're going to use a biomarker to select patients. What combinations of therapy might I give? And to do that, that's predicated on really truly understanding the mechanism of disease. And today, we get that wrong in phase three oncology trials about two out of every three times. It means when we think we're, we know it, we've got it slam dunked, this is going to work, and we design the trial, two out of three of them still fail. So there's a gap, there's a huge gap within pharma, right, that needs to understand the mechanism of disease. And so the way that I think that this should be used in pharma today is within your phase two trial where you're looking for signal, there's generally a few patients that are super responders. They really responded unbelievably to the therapy. And there's usually a subset of progressors, not just non-responders, but people that progress pretty rapidly, even though they were on the drug. And by taking those two sets and doing you know, some multiplexed analysis so you can actually identify deep cell types to do the spatial analysis, not just no tumor cells and lymphocytes, but really understand all the subsets and things that are in the environment and comparing the differences, the spatial differences between the super responders and the super progressors, you can start making new hypotheses about the way that your drug actually works. And then they'll test them out with a variety of other methodologies with the idea being that you can better design that phase three trial to one, have it succeed more often and have it succeed faster so that you get better drugs to market. And hopefully even along the way, killing some of the bad drugs that otherwise would have entered that phase three trial. So that's the, to me, that's the value for pharma today. And I think that's who's going to pay for, you know, our next generation of learning around spatial biology. Because I think if we put it in the clinic, it would go in the clinic, but there's nobody to pay for it yet. Right. It would be interesting mm-hmm. tools, yeah. but there's not a reimbursement code. It, it We do have to train pathologists how to use it, et cetera. So there's going to be that learning curve. I think in the clinic, we need to find a scenario that's similar to the Clarion scenario of I'll give you digital imaging and image analysis for free because I don't have to do that FedEx cost. I need something that's going to return value to the person providing it. And, you know, I think that those things are coming. Those things are going to be improved workflow, uh, you know, so higher throughput, the ability to look at more cases within their center. So it's going to be increased revenue for the group that's providing those services. And, you know, it's really for reference labs, I think it's more about block retention than anything else. You know, if you send me the block for me to do the immunostains, it's likely that I'll also do the molecular testing and all future things that you want. I'm sort of your go-to provider for all new things. And so I think the labs that can do molecular testing along with spatial testing are going to be the successful labs five years from now. Because I think pathologists are going to start, once they see it and begin to touch it, we're still a little bit early, right? Because most labs still haven't fully implemented digital pathology. That's still pretty nascent, but it's, yep. but it's coming, right? We see more and more every year. I think mm-hmm. as pathologists start to see what they can do with digital pathology, and it opens up avenues that they never thought of before, that they're going to be the ones that give us the creative use cases 
to go, you know what? I'll give you a, a perfect example of this. So one okay. of the things, one of the things that's really easy to do with digital pathology is to identify tumor area necrosis uh, and stroma uh, yeah. in, in non-tumor tissue. It does that, you know, AI routines do that really, really well. And then the other thing we can do is when we identify a tumor area, we're really good at counting cells. So imagine every molecular lab where a pathologist is looking at an H&E under a microscope, circling tumor, filling out a form saying that, you know, this is 35% tumor that, that we know is wildly inaccurate from CAP surveys, that they're not accurate at all. They're either massively overestimating or underestimating the actual uh-huh. tumor amount. And say, you know, why are you doing that at all? It's like, it's, it's a function that you don't do well. That's totally unnecessary. I could take that slide. I could have the AI identify the tumor area automatically and draw around it. I can actually count the cells and tell you how many cells are in the, in that tissue. You'll be able Mm -hmm. to correlate that with your extraction method and then get a nice correlation between cell counts and allele fractions cell counts and nanograms recovered. So you'll actually know input requirements from the assay. Do I need to submit three slides or five slides or seven slides to get my 50 nanograms, you know, of so, so it's going to take right. what we do today, which is largely, largely boring and not done very well and turn it into a science that can be mm-hmm. done in, you know, methodically in a high throughput fashion. And more importantly, similarly in labs across the country, right? So it's like, oh, well, right. that works when we send to this lab and we send to the other lab, they can't get a result, right? So we can get that standardization. And moreover, when you're done, rather than taking that circled H&E slide and then holding it up to the unstained slide to scrape the area between the circle, we can just print out a whole worksheet that has a picture of the slide, you know, built to scale, Already with the circle around it, you just put your unstained slide over the top and scrape. And it will tell you, you know, tell the tech, you need to do two slides for this case. You need to do five slides for this case. You need to do one slide for this case and seven slides for that case because of the cellularity and percent tumor, et cetera. And so, you know, I think there's, so there's good practical applications today that I think could exist. Uh, uh-huh. But I think that's the real power of spatial biology. Now, there's one more topic that I, I think we just need to talk about quickly, and that's in relationship to what I'll call more black box learning. And that okay. is, can I ju- and there's a number of companies that are doing this. So they're trying to do things like predict prostate cancer, uh, predict a genomic signature, predict whatever. We, we call it internally at nuclei H&E to X. Right. So you just tell me what you want to predict from an H&E and you give me enough cases and I can put that into my convoluted neural network. And, you know, with enough cases, the network will start to learn how to do those predictions. Now, for some things like tumor, I'm not a huge believer, only because from practical experience, when we look at those really tough cases, and this goes back to origi- the original telepathology experiments, right, on the, on the uh, frozen section breast, you know, 90, 95% of what we look at as pathologists is really straightforward. So if I'm looking at a prostate biopsy, whether it's benign or malignant, and, you know, the obvious ones are no issues. It's the ones that have a small amount of atypical glands 
things that have a, you know, a pattern that I wouldn't routinely recognize, right? It might be a, a mimicker of something, right? But the problem is those cases are really, really rare, right? And so unless you trained on tens of thousands of those rare cases, it makes your models look like they're performing great on the easy stuff where you don't need help. And where you need help, the models aren't as great as what people think they are. And we see this all the time in, in actually in really good journals like Nature and others where I'll read a paper that, you know, a group of computer scientists said, you know, we perform the same as a pathologist because we were 92% accurate. And it's like, yeah, yeah you know, you perform the reason the other 8% you didn't get is because that requires expertise. And by definition, for you to be an expert, somebody has to disagree with you. Otherwise, you're just smart. So, for example, in the atypical prostate world, there's expert pathologists that call those atypical things malignant. And there's expert pathologists that call those atypical things benign. Same thing in the breast world. When we see atypical hyperplasia, some call it atypical hyperplasia. Some call it, uh, you know, introductal carcinoma. And we put some arbitrary definitions around it, how many ducts and how much size and, and other things that, of course, if you take a recut, everything changes, right? It, it was slightly less than the cutoff on this cut, but now we take a deeper cut and it's slightly more than the cutoff, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. that those things are, are difficult. The other issue with training H and E's are that H and E's aren't a consistent stain among labs because hematoxylin has huge lot-to-lot -lot variation. And, you know, each pathologist prefers a slightly different H&E. Some like it a little bit redder, some like it a little bit bluer. Uh, yeah. In addition, each microtome is a little bit different. Sometimes you cut a three microns, sometimes four microns, sometimes five microns. And while as a pathologist, our eyeball can differentiate that, when you put those into neural networks, you don't know what it's learning. So unless you're putting in the full spectrum of what you get in terms of staining variation, in terms of tissue thickness, in terms of all of the regular histology variables that we get day to day, probably fixation issues, you know, all of these other things could affect the learning because we don't, you know, while they don't affect our eyeball, because I say, I need to see these nuclear features and I need to see X, Y, Z, and I can look under the microscope or on the screen and say, either I see them or I don't. If I don't see them, then I send it back to the lab and say, restain it. If I do see it, then I can go on. But when it goes into a neural network, you're not quite sure what features it relied on. It might have been relying on the deepness of the blue staining, for example. And now that it doesn't see that with the next stain, it might reach a different conclusion. So I think we're a little bit early on some of these things. And I think as pathologists inherently, we don't want to trust a black box to tell us what it identified. We want to we want to know features. I call this a tumor cell and I can look at it and say, I agree with you, that's a tumor cell, right? Or I disagree with you. You know, so one of us is off, I better show it to somebody else. So I think right. we're early on in the process. Um, like I said, I'm a huge believer in the translational pathology space for pharma and for academics doing mechanism of action work. And I'm also mm -hmm. a huge proponent of getting the tools to the early adopters in the digital pathology space. So not so that I can tell them what to do so they can come up with the creative ideas to tell people like me what should be built to really advance the practice of pathology. And I think that's where we need to engage pathologists 
those early adopters really could structure the way the pathology is going to function 10, 20 years from now. And most of the people that I hear talking about it, though, are talking about things that are, you know, are just like efficiency things in pathology, you know, which I think is, is really an issue. We're being a little bit short-sighted about getting pathologists and everybody excited about the potential of this technology. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, I, I love the uh, the implications of this technology because it links pathology to, you know, drug development and it puts pathology and really pathologists are then the driver of that of that process. And yeah, that, I think that's important. Absolutely. I think we're going to there's going to be more things that are going to be created within this digital pathology world that I think will also be revolutionary. But this digital, the spatial biology combined with machine learning, to me, is the same game changer that I went through in my career. So when I started pathology, we just had H&E, right? We made all uh -huh. of our decisions off of H&E, electron microscopy plus minus. Uh, I was on the, you know, the very early clinical implementations of immunohistochemistry immunohistochemistry totally changed the way that we classify disease, right? Now, now we yeah. can start looking and just saying there's no such thing as an undifferentiated tumor. Now we could say you're a carcinoma, you're a sarcoma, you're a melanoma with pretty high accuracy. And then when we started getting into fish and being able to see translocations and then PCR testing and, and more NGS and we can get into molecular alterations, now, all of a sudden, you know, you don't have breast cancer and lung cancer. You've got many different subdivisions that, you know, become really important clinically. And I think as we now add spatial features, we're going to add more subtypes of cancers, more subtypes of disease. And those are going to be, you know, associated with better therapeutic responses. And when that happens, then it becomes a tool that pathologists absolutely have to have. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. D Dr. Bloom, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know we went way over the time, uh, but I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, this has been fantastic. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? No, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Uh, you know, this has been, you know, almost a 40 year career for me. Uh, yeah. You know, I can't tell you how exciting it is to really finally be at a point where we can exploit the power of digital pathology, having just watched it for 35 years with really not that much advancement to be uh -huh. able to say we, we're now finally going to be able to do things that I just couldn't have imagined at the start. And that's really exciting. Yeah, it is. It's an exciting time to be in pathology. I, I agree. I agree. Dr. Ken Bloom, thank you very much. Thanks, Dennis. Pleasure. Great big thanks to Dr. Ken Bloom. I've got a trailer for you right now of another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. One of the even more exciting applications of this atlas would be if I know how the tissue of a non-responder patient looks like, and I know how a tissue of a responder looks like, can I find ways to reprogram the tumor from state X to, to state Y. So this is where we think technology like high-flex AI, spatial biology, could not only again 
file biomarkers, but also file actually new targets, a new strategy to develop drugs that would affect cells and proteins in space and will reprogram the tumor from state, resistant state to a sensitive state and will drive the development of a new class of drugs that you know, engineer or reprogram the tumor microenvironment. To hear more from Dr. Ori Zelikoff and learn more about nuclei, check out episode 111. There's a lot that I'd like to say about this episode, but since it was a little longer than usual, I'll try to keep this short. I think there are two main lessons from this conversation, and both of them have come up in previous episodes. The first one is taking advantage of opportunities when they arise. Dr. Bloom was an early adopter of a few different technologies applied to pathology. And sure, part of that was luck, but most of it, I think, was that he put himself in a position where these opportunities would come up. And when they did, he took advantage of them. And the second lesson is curiosity. So again, Dr. Bloom was curious about these different areas. He found them interesting, and then he pursued them to see where they would go. So the lesson then is to keep that curiosity. I mean, that's probably why most of us got into this field to begin with, right? As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.